Matthew 16. Page 1044, if you're using a Bible provided, there should be one under a chair in front of you in that row. We want you to open up with us and look at what God's Word has to say, because we're here to hear what God has to say. And only as I am faithful to that will I be faithful to the task God has given to me. Matthew 16, page 1044. Is anybody tired of hearing me ask the same question week after week? If you don't know what that question is, then obviously you're not tired of it. But if you know what the question is that I'm about to ask you, then you say, yes, yes, we know, we know. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then I followed up with the second repeated question. What is your response to him? What is your response to him? And here in Matthew 16, we come to the reason why I have repeated these questions ad nauseum. We have reached in Matthew 16 here the climax of Jesus' teaching ministry and the pinnacle of Jesus' training ministry with the apostles. I will not be able to give adequate time and attention to this passage and how vital and important it is to us individually and as a church and for our world. But I want you to hear this passage. There's, there's maybe not any more important passage in uh, the Gospel of Matthew or in Scripture, and there's so many important and great, just you can't rank them necessarily, but we have reached the climax and the pinnacle of the Gospel. So you need to see Matthew and what he's doing. He's been aiming for this point, and, and here is, a, is the pinnacle. Now there's, there's much more to go. We're, we're not done yet, and there's very much important ground to be covered. But, but this is the mountaintop of, of what Christ is doing in his teaching and training ministry. They still have the cross, that's the climax of Jesus' work. But here we have the work, uh, the teaching of Christ and where he was pointing. What is the foundational answer to every problem in our world? What is the fundamental solution to every need in the world? Where must every person turn for rescue? What is the world's only true hope? In a word, Jesus in two words, Jesus Christ. In four, three words, and you can go on and on and just build from there. Some of you might remember this song from the 90s. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. And if you get that song stuck in your head, you're welcome. <laughs> I had it stuck in my head yesterday, and I got it stuck in Tracy's head, and I spread the love and uh, took care of that. But the, the, the simple point of that simple song is everything comes back to Jesus. He is the solid rock upon which everything lasting must be built. Everything lasting must be built. He is the source, the starting point, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in great detail. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, please speak through your servant to clearly communicate the vital importance of your word and take that truth and drill it into every heart of every person listening now and ever. That we may be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your mercy, through your grace, because of your, your love, because of your Son. Do this for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. 
I'll read through verse 20. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's divine revelation. This is the good news for sinners. This is the greatest news you could ever hear. It is a blessing upon you that you are here to hear it this morning. May we listen to it. Our theme is simply this. King Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. King Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right before this passage, Jesus had had an encounter, a conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. And after he had defeated them in battle, (laughs) King Jesus had then warned his disciples about the leaven the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples had little faith because they lacked perception. And lacking faith, having little faith, is a dangerous position. Therefore, Jesus warned them about that. He warned them about the teaching, ministry, of these enemies of Christ. So what is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that was so dangerous? It is their lack of faith leading to the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. That is what is so dangerous about them. That is the unifying factor of all of God's enemies. It's the the denial of who Christ is and the refusal to trust in him, to look to him, to come to him. That is the heart, the center of all of what God's enemies teach and preach and promote. No matter whether they are conservative enemies of Christ or liberal enemies of Christ, no matter if they claim to be irreligious or no matter what religion they have other than Christ. So where for the disciples, the apostles of Christ, where does this perception leading to faith and understanding come from? If they are lacking this perception, if they have little faith, the Pharisees and Sadducees have no faith, where would Perception leading to faith and understanding come from. Why do some have it and others don't? Keep that in mind. It's not the ultimate question, but it's definitely something that brings these two sections together. So flowing out of the idea of a lack of perception leading to little faith and understanding, what is Jesus going to say and do now? The first thing he does is he asks a question. Jesus' question is the first thing. So he asked his disciples, his apostles, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, as you'll see in just a minute. 
the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who were his enemies, but specifically in Matthew 12, the Pharisees claim that he is a blasphemer, that he is from Satan. He's doing all of these miracles and all this great power and all his might comes from Satan. He is the enemy of God. That's what they have claimed. That's what they've accused him of. That's what they've attacked him with. So Jesus is not referring to the Pharisees or the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's referring to the people. Who is Jesus according to the people? The people who are coming to him, who just came to him, who came to him for healing, who stayed and were fed by him. Chapter 15. Who do they think he is? Those who are coming to him trusting for healing, trusting for miracles, trusting for great power from God. Who do they think Jesus is? And the answer, Jesus is a resurrected prophet. That encapsulates all of the options given. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, all of these men were prophets, and all of these men are dead. And so if Jesus is one of them, he would have had to come back to life. What a fantastic statement to think that Jesus is a resurrected prophet. Have you ever ran into a resurrected person before? <laughs> Have you ever thought, you know, I think, I think that's Elijah back from the dead. Amazing. I mean, we, of course not. We, you know, we're modern people who don't really believe that people come back from the dead regularly. Just like the Jewish people. They don't think people come back from the dead regularly. This isn't something like everywhere they go, they're seeing resurrected prophets and everyone's a resurrected person. And it's not some sort of weird belief in reincarnation that everyone had. This is just as fantastic in Jesus' day as it would be in our day. But the people can't make sense of Jesus' power without thinking he's one of the miracle-working prophets from of old. Or the prophet who just was put to death by Herod the Great. Now there's a tremendous amount of faith here, but it is a misplaced faith. It falls short of the truth because it misses the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. It misses his uniqueness. He's not one of the prophets, even a resurrected prophet. He's the great prophet. He's absolutely unique. And if you only get a part of the truth, that he's unique, but not absolutely unique, he's, he's one among many of great people or great prophets. If you miss his uniqueness, then you miss Jesus totally. There's no one else ever like him because he is, as we will see, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've been reading through A Wrinkle in Time, not because I like the book, but because it's a literature assignment and I must read it. <laughs> but if you've ever read A Wrinkle in Time, we just went through it. All of a sudden, they bring up Jesus. They quote from the Bible. And I thought, maybe this book is pointing to Jesus as the answer. No, it's not. Jesus is just another one of the enlightened ones, along with Buddha and Gandhi and others. Jesus is a, is a great prophet. He's enlightened. He fights evil, along with all of these other great people, Copernicus and others who fight evil. He's one of many of the great ones. Therefore, the author of that famous book completely misses Jesus, though gets one piece right. He, he is unique and enlightened, but he's not like them. 
So Jesus becomes, in our day and age, for many people, just another one of the greats. Another one of the enlightened ones. Who do people say that I am? But, moving on, who do you say that I am? That's who the people say that Jesus is, but who do you, apostles, say that he is? And so who is Jesus according to the apostles? That's his follow-up question. It's the same question just put to them. Who is Jesus according to the apostles? What do his followers think? Not the crowds, not his enemies, his followers. And here we have Peter's confession. Peter's confession. Who do you say that I am? Peter has the answer. But Peter doesn't speak just for himself. This is one of the places where we can miss this because Simon Peter is the only one who says something. But notice the question is put to the group. And because this is just a written narrative, we don't have maybe all the details. How long before Peter gave an answer? We don't know. But this is a group answer. Peter speaks as a representative of the group. This is not just Peter's belief. This is the belief of the group. And, and it's, what's amazing is believing that Jesus was the Messiah has been going on since the beginning of the apostles' ministry with Christ. In fact, I think it was uh, um, I think Andrew or Philip, I forget which one, who at, upon meeting Jesus says, you are the Messiah because Jesus saw him underneath the fig tree. He says, you are the Messiah. You, they got it. They, they've been believing all along he's the Messiah. So something about this is absolutely unique. And maybe it's Messiahship connected to uh, deity. But notice that this is not the first time. They've already worshipped Christ as the Lord after he calmed the storm. So there's, there's many times already, but there's something absolutely unique here. And it's the idea of Jesus putting them to the test. And, and they as a group coming to this unique and absolute response. Jesus is the Messiah. That's the confession. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. God's predicted and long-awaited deliverer of Israel. Jesus is Messiah. So we sing that song, Jesus Messiah. That's just Jesus Christ. Every, and we had Christ in, in our songs today. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. One is a Hebrew. One is the Greek how would we put it? Jesus is the rescuer. He is the savior, the Jewish rescuer, the Jewish, Jewish savior. Another commentator says this, the son of David who would restore the nation to the glory and independence of the first King David. The son of David to restore the kingdom, the Messiah who would bring it to its greatest glory, even beyond the glory of David. He is the rescuer, the savior that the Jewish people have been waiting for for so long. What's fantastic is this, the Jewish people, the Israelites waited for 400 years in slavery in Egypt before God sent Moses, the Redeemer, to lead them out. And now since the close of the book of Malachi, God has been silent for 400 years. And then John the Baptist comes, the forerunner of the Messiah. And now things are happening, amazing, glorious, miraculous things, 400 years of silence. They've been waiting, and he's here. But notice that not only is Jesus the Jewish Messiah, 
The rest of the New Testament, don't stop in Matthew, keep reading. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear that he is the rescuer, the savior that the entire world has been waiting for. That's why the Great Commission at the end of this gospel, go you, go ye, I'm going to go back to my King James Version days, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. I think it's actually Acts, probably Acts 1.8. Go to all the nations, preach the gospel to all people. Why? Because Jesus is a long-awaited Savior and rescuer of all mankind, not just for Israel. Do the disciples know that now? Have they put all the pieces together? No, they haven't. They know so much, and there's still yet more to come, but they have reached the pinnacle of the very foundation and, and fundamental nature of this confession. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. This is a reference to the divinity of Jesus. He is uniquely God's Son. All of God's children, all of the believers in Jesus Christ, all, of, all Christians are God's children, sons of God in that sense. But Jesus is the Son of God. He's divine. He is God in human flesh. And what you need to see right here is that Jesus does not rebuke him or correct him. Anyone who wants to claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, he never claimed to be the Messiah, he never claimed to be the Savior, he never claimed to be divine, he never claimed to be any of those things, misses the whole point that every time someone says these absolutely unique things about Jesus, he never says, no, you got it wrong. No correction, no rebuke. He accepts this confession, and not only accepts it, but says Peter is blessed for making it. I tell you what, if you were to say something inaccurate in front of God or in front of a great prophet, would they call you blessed for your heresy? They say, you're just such a wonderful person. Thank you for saying something that's absolutely not true. Just keep on saying it. That's so foolish. So who is Jesus to the people? Who is Jesus according to the apostles? Who is Jesus according to you? We'll say, uh, Matthew's not about me. I'm not in here. Yes, you are. Because we're confronted with the truth. Who do you say that Jesus is? What's your confession this morning? Is he simply a good man? A great teacher? A resurrected Old Testament prophet? An enlightened thinker? Is he one among many? Jesus doesn't give you that option. He doesn't give you that option. He accepts this confession from Peter. So therefore, you must think about Jesus, either Jesus and accepting this confession that he is the son of God, the unique son of God, the very Jewish Messiah, the savior, the rescuer, that either he's a lunatic for thinking that, he's delusional, or he's lying because he knows he's not that, but he's going to accept it anyway. Or he is this person, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Lord. So this is C.S. Lewis' great trilemma. Either Jesus is liar, or he's lunatic, or he's Lord. There's no third or fourth or fifth. There's no fourth or fifth option. So a Christian is not simply someone who believes in a God. It's not someone who believes in a creator God. A Christian is not simply someone who even believes in the God of the Bible. 
A Christian must make this same confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that your confession today? Is it not only your confession with your mouth, but is it what you believe in your heart? Romans 10, come back tonight, hear more about it. We confess it because we believe it. Is that your confession? Are you trusting only in Jesus Christ, very God in human flesh, the one who came down from heaven, lived a sinless life, earning righteousness, died a perfect sinless death, a sacrificial death in the place of all who would trust in him, raised again the third day in the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing justification and all the promises of God to all his people forever. Is that the Messiah you're trusting in? Is that the Jesus you trust in? Is that your confession? Is that what you believe? This is your only hope. This is your only chance for rescue. This is the only opportunity that you have. Jesus is the answer to your sin problem. Jesus is the answer to your purpose problem. Jesus is the answer to your emptiness problem, to your brokenness problem, to your miserable problem, to your depression, to those things. All those struggles you have, Jesus is the answer. He's the fundamental, foundational starting point of every answer that will ever come in your life, ever. He's the answer. Trust in him. He's your only hope. Individually. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He's the Master. And we can go on and on with all of the titles of who Christ is. Trust in Him. Confess with your mouth today. Believe in your heart and be saved today. Be born again today. This is, this is where it pointed. We could, should we not just sit here all day meditating on who Christ is and what he's done and what we believe? Could we not sing song after song even till we're out of breath and we've lost our voices? Peter's confession. Third, we see the Father's blessing. Peter is blessed by God. That's what Christ said. That's what Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, said. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon, son of John, is the best way of translating that. Peter is blessed by God. Notice that Peter did not earn God's blessing by this confession. Rather, Peter is blessed by God and then makes this confession. Peter confessed because God has blessed. The blessing comes before the confession. The blessing is an outworking, the confession is an outworking of this blessing. What Jesus says here is that Peter's understanding was not a result of human revelation. Simon, son of John, you are blessed because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. Peter's understanding was not a result of human revelation. Spiritual insight into the identity of the Son of God is not of human origin. It is not of human effort. It is not even of human will. And this backs up what the Apostle John says in John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born. You were born as a Christian. You were born again, not of blood, physical, nor of the will of the flesh, again, a physical representation, nor of the will of man. What caused you to be born again, Christian? The very will of God, the work of God, the revelation of God. It doesn't come of a human origin. Therefore, Peter, you and anyone who receives Christ is born again by the will of God, by the work of God, through the revelation of the Father, through the Holy Spirit, in the Son. So if Peter's understanding was not of human revelation, then Peter's understanding was a result of divine revelation. Divine revelation. The Father revealed it to the apostles. The Father revealed it to Peter. And the same would be true for anyone. Who, or not who, why do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Why do you believe? Why do you confess? Because the Father revealed it to you. The Father revealed it to you by His Spirit, in His Word, through the proclamation of the Gospel to you. That's how every person comes to faith in Christ. It's not of human origin. It's not of human will. You did not understand. You did not perceive. You did not believe because you were smarter, more intelligent, with more insight than anyone else. No matter how, through human agency, you came to faith in your own personal life, it was only by God's grace, all of God's blessing, that you understand anything spiritual. So the question we have so many times as we witness, as we share with our family, with our friends, with our children, with our grandchildren, with, with anyone that we share the good news with, why won't they trust in Jesus? Why don't they see him for who he is and believe? Why do they reject? Why do they not even want to hear it? Why do they get angry? Why do they push me away? Why don't they see what seems so clear and evident to me? Because God has not yet revealed it to them. Do some of you have the testimony of rejecting time and time and time and time again, hearing the good news and not believing for years, for decades, until God revealed it to you when you came to Christ? It's the same for all men, men and women, children alike. Until God reveals it, they will not see. So if that's true, preacher, if God has to reveal it to them, if the Father has to work through the Spirit through, uh, the, uh, to reveal the Son then what do we do? What do I do with all of the loved ones, all of my friends, all of my family, my coworkers, my, my classmates at school? What do I do? If it's not up to me, or if it's not up to them, what do I do? Well, the Bible's clear and, and simple. We pray to the Father to reveal it to them, and we proclaim the truth. We pray and we proclaim. We pray and we proclaim. Simple, isn't it? So simple, even your two-year-old could understand it. Just say it about four more times and then ask him, what did pastor say 45 times? He said, pray and proclaim. They say, what's proclaim? Pray and speak. Pray and tell. Romans 10 hate to keep stealing the thunder from our Sunday night study, but it always seems to fit so well. Romans 10, here's the good news. Listen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will anyone who calls on the name of the Lord not be saved? Anyone? Everyone will be saved. That's the promise. That's the good news. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim to all people, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, trust in Christ, and you will be saved. Well, if that has to be revealed to someone through the work of the Father, through the Spirit, through the Word, then what are we to do? Well, unfortunately for us who are struggling with witnessing or shy about witnessing or scared about witnessing, the next verses are not comforting to us. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? Simple question, right? They have to call on him, but if they don't have faith, will they call on him? The answer is... No, they have to believe before they call. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Can you believe in someone you've never heard about? The answer is no. Are you with me so far? And how are they here without someone preaching? Can you hear the good news without someone proclaiming it? The answer is, I mean, you could start maybe giving a little bit more here. It's not as hard as it seems. The answer is no. no. There we go. Thank you. I mean, you guys were louder by telling me I, you hope I lose my voice than you are in answering these questions. <laughs> Come on. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Can someone preach unless they are sent out? No. no. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing Hearing through the word of Christ. How will people come to faith in Christ? The word of God will be proclaimed. The truth will be preached. And God will open up their eyes and ears and heart to receive. And they will see Christ for who he is. And they will believe. That's the process. And that is all of God's grace, all of God's mercy, all of God's work. God has to reveal it to them, but he reveals it to them through the means of our human proclamation. You came to Christ because someone proclaimed the gospel to you. And if they had not proclaimed the gospel to you, you could not hear, you could not believe, you could not be saved. Is it still God's work in Revelation? Absolutely how does God do it? By human means. God ordains the ends, the salvation of the people through the revelation of the Son, through the Spirit and the Word. He ordains those ends as well as the means, the human proclamation of the gospel to all people that brings about the ends. We cannot sit here and just trust in God's promise to save souls and believe that by some sort of osmosis, some sort of miracle, the truth will just somehow pop up in their heart and mind. They will have to hear it from someone. Do you want that blessing or do you want that blessing to go to someone else? Do you want that privilege? Do you want that joy? Then we must proclaim. And when we proclaim and God reveals, people believe and are transformed. Now, we could just stop there. and Every part of this is just so important. We're going on, though. Jesus' promise. What's Jesus' promise? He doesn't stop with what he just said. He goes on, And I tell you, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
What's Jesus' promise? His promise is to build. I will build my church. So the blanks are Jesus will build his church. Not fantastic, not earth-shaking. It's not hard to see it. Jesus says will. He doesn't say might. He doesn't say maybe. He says will. It's his promise. You can count on it. And he says he will build his church. It's his, not yours, not mine. He's the owner. He's the builder. So with this promise connected to the good news of the confession and what God is doing, we pray with confidence that people will see Jesus for who he truly is and believe in him. We pray clinging and trusting in Christ's promise to build his church, which demands that more and more souls be saved. If Christ is building his church, I will build my church. It must continue to be built, which means more people must be saved. It must continue on until he's done building. And therefore, we can pray with confidence that we, as we proclaim, God will save souls. That's his promise. I will build. I will build it. Trust me. Believe in me. Believe his promise. And notice, he says, I will build my church. And there's more. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ's church is advancing. How can you be sure that more souls will be saved? Because of the second part of Christ's promise. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not hold Christ back. Will not prevail against it. Against the church. So Jesus Christ came proclaiming his kingdom. He inaugurated his kingdom. His kingdom is advancing supernaturally in this world and nothing can stop it. Not even hell, death itself. And Jesus promises to have the victory. He defeated all his enemies on the cross. Sin, death, hell, Satan defeated on the cross. The beauty of the cross is that the work is accomplished. He said, it is finished. Not the building of the church, not the finalization of the kingdom, but the victory won in Christ, redemption accomplished and applied to all his people. Now we just have to see it play out in time. And his church is advancing because Christ's promise will not stop. But it doesn't look like that, does it? Does it look like Christ's church is advancing? Does it look as if a Christ's army is on the march? Or does it appear as if the church is in retreat? Running. As if hell and Hades and Satan and sin and death and all the enemies of God are just taking ground one day after another. We are so tempted. So tempted. In light of what we see with our own two eyes. How can you argue with what you see? I mean, you see it, don't you? If you see it, it must be true. Amen? Don't fall for my amen tricks, okay? Not every time I say that do you need to, to respond. Do you believe what you see with your own two eyes? I mean, transformers. More than meets the eye. That's not in the notes. That's just, that was just a gift. A gift this morning, right? I mean, if you can't trust what you see with a transformer, <laughs> how can you trust what you see with your own two eyes in this world around us? It feels like we are losing. It seems like we're almost defeated. This is why we must trust Christ's promise. Don't trust your eyes. We must perceive things through the eyes of faith. 
eyes of faith. Have we, as God's people, forgotten the cross? Did it not look like Christ was defeated? That it was done? It was over? Satan had won? Do you not forget the body taken down from the cross, buried in a tomb, encased in stone? The Messiah is dead. It's over. Satan is won. But why do we worship on Sunday? Because the victory was complete. He came forth out of the grave alive. We have a victorious warrior king. He lives today. Do you see with eyes of faith? Or do you only see with physical eyes? Have we forgotten who Jesus Christ is? Have we forgotten his faithfulness? Have we forgotten his power? Do we trust his promises? We say we do, but do we live that? And it's so easy for us to want to run from the battle, run from those things, and find a place to, to, to just take the last stand. Like we got to find the Alamo somewhere, and just until we finally defeated the last guy standing. It had to be David Crockett, right? The last guy standing in the Alamo. Or we just want to bury our heads in the sand and let the world do it around and say, you know, I can't see it. I can't, you know, see no evil, hear no evil. Speak no, it's just we, we want because we think we're losing. We think the church is losing. Hear God's promise. And notice how the promise goes forward. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock. I will build my church. So the promise that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the promise also includes the fact that he will build his rock on this, his church on this rock. Christ's church is built on this confession by Peter and by the apostles. Peter's only a represent, representative of the whole group. So what he says is you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. It's a play on words. It's spoken Aramaic. That's the, the language that the apostles in Christ uh, probably spoke most of the time. They spoke in their common day language of Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. But if it was spoken in Aramaic, it would have used the same word, kephas. Some of you know the word Cephas in the Bible, C-E-P-H-A-S. Uh, we mispronounce it because we're not Aramaic speakers. That's kephas or kephas. I'm not sure. You can say, you know, just pick your, your own translation or pronunciation there. It's the same word, rock and Peter. Kephas, rock. Peter, rock. If it's in the Greek, it's Petros and Petra. You know, you remember that great Christian rock group, Petra? Never mind. I'm just losing it here. But it's probably in Aramaic. And so the idea here is you are Kephas, and on this Kephas I will build my church. It might sound like Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and on you I will build my church, but that's not it at all. He's making a distinction. You are Peter, and on this rock. If he wanted to say that the, the church would be built on Peter, he would say, you are Kephas, and on you, he wouldn't say this rock. He would say, you are, you are the rock I'm building on. So he's making a play on words, but he's making a distinction between Peter and the rock the church is built on. This rock goes back to the this that had been revealed to Peter and the apostles. What is the this that had been revealed? The confession that Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of uh, the living God. This is the revelation of who Jesus is. The church is built on the revelation of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, Lord and Savior. That is the rock of the church. Now we do know that Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the cornerstone of the church. And the apostles are the foundation of the church. This is, does not deny that. But the rock of all of it is the confession of Jesus Christ as the rock, the cornerstone, the son of the living God. 
That confession is what the church is built on. It's the foundation stone. It's the beginning of all things. And this confession is what binds all Christians together. This is the rock of the church everywhere and anywhere. Everything begins with a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's nothing else that is accomplished eternally before that point. And all our work is leading to that starting point. Our evangelism leads to that point of people confessing this same thing that we have confessed as Christians. Now, it is not the only thing we do. It's not the last thing we do. But it is the first thing we must do is proclaim the good news so that people will confess this truth. Without it, there's nothing else to do in this world. In one sense, this is the beginning point. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed, and Jesus is the rock that anything lasting is built upon. Your life, your family, your church, your nation, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all of the ground. For you, your family, your church, your nation, Christ is the rock. What do we proclaim? What do we proclaim? So here's, the, here's where it gets real personal and real practical and real important. I see the world around me just falling apart as if it's built on sinking sand. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because everything around us is, for the most part, built on sinking sand. Why wouldn't it sink when danger, trouble, toil comes, we will not fear the war. We will not fear the storm. We will not fear the pandemic. Why not? Help is on the way. He will not delay. He will answer. He will save. He will rescue. He's our hope. But not for the world. Not for the world. Millions are going to die. Maybe tens of millions are going to die. Maybe hundreds of millions of people around the world are going to die from a disease. And what is our hope? What are we crying out for? What are we trusting in? Not just the world, but primarily the world is built on sinking sand. They have no hope in Christ. They have no God who saves. Their God is science. Their salvation is a mask or a vaccine or whatever it is. That's what they're trusting in. That's their hope. And when it sinks, when it fails, when it falls apart, we understand why. Because they put their hope not on the rock, but on sinking sand. But what about Christians? Is our hope any different than the world? Is our faith built on something more lasting than sinking sand? Now you say, Pastor, I'm not sure what you're saying about the pandemic. Well... Let me be a little more clear. Our hope is in Christ alone. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand on every part of our life. You say, well, how is Christ the salvation from a disease? Now, if I just let that sit for a while, can you have not figure that out for the most part on your own? say, so, well, pastor, are you saying that we shouldn't get a vaccination or we shouldn't wear a mask? Are you saying that we shouldn't social distance? Nope. Hmm. What are you saying? Don't you want to know? 
I'm saying Psalm 33. Go to Psalm 33. This is not in my notes. I read this this morning, and I was debating whether God would bring this up or not. And If it's not the Lord, then you can just blame me for this. But I, I'm trying to tell you, this is the, the climax. This is the pinnacle. This is the idea. Christ is the answer for everything. And if he's not the answer in a pandemic, then what kind of rock do we have? What kind of foundation do we have if God is there, if Christ is there, if Christ is the answer for everything, but for the things that will kill us? If you can't trust him in a pandemic, why would you trust him with your eternal life? If you can't trust him in war, why would you trust him for anything? If you can't trust him in this world, when it comes down to the very real nitty-gritty things of life, why would you trust him in the life to come? If we say we trust our eternal salvation, our eternal life, the forgiveness of all the wickedness of our sin, to Jesus Christ as the rock, foundation, answer, salvation, Savior, Redeemer, Messiah, if our hope is there for all those other things, then what about the things of this world? Psalm 33. It's not the only place. It's just what I saw this morning. So many places. Look at verse 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope where? In his steadfast love, that he may do what? Deliver their soul from what? Death, and keep them alive in a pandemic. Oh, it doesn't say that, Pastor. It says famine. Well, let me tell you, what's, what's harder to be rescued from, a pandemic or famine? Disease? Pestilence? Fam Is it not the same category? Circumstances outside ourselves, who can bring the rain? Who can bring the food up? Who can stop a plague? Who can do that? Who's our salvation? Who is our hope? He keeps them alive in famine. How does he do that? Miraculously? Powerfully? But wait, does that mean the king shouldn't have a great army? Does that mean the king shouldn't have a great warrior horse? Does that mean the warrior shouldn't have any strength? Oh, and there it is. There it is. Wear a mask, but trust in the Lord. Get a vaccine, but trust in the Lord. Work out and pump that iron, but trust in the Lord. Learn how to shoot a gun. Learn how to defend yourself, but trust in the Lord, have a great army, have cities with walls, but trust in the Lord. Have chariots, but trust in the Lord. Be wise, but trust in the Lord. The Lord will save. The only salvation from death is Christ. From anything that kills you. The only thing that will save us alive physically and spiritually now and eternally in a pandemic is Christ. That's it. Be wise. Take advantage of all the gifts that God gives, but trust in the Lord. Jesus is the answer. And as long as this world continues to turn away from God, turn away from Christ, and thinks they can save themselves... And we buy into that. We're a part of the sinking sand of the corrupt world around us, and we will sink with them. And if we believe like they believe and follow them, then we deserve to sink and to be taken out with the rest of them. We deserve God's judgment if we don't act differently in this time. 
I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says. Because when the pandemic came, what did our leaders say? What did they say our hope was? Where did they say our rescue was? We are Michigan strong and we will get through this and we will defeat the virus. We will? How? On our own, there is no God, there is no rescue, there is no eternity, there is no life outside of this, there is no hope besides in us. And we must believe differently than the world, even if we take advantage of the gifts that God has given us in this world, we cannot put our hope and faith in those things. Jesus is the answer. He is our hope, our only hope, no matter what other gifts we have. Therefore, in the midst of the most dangerous situations of famine, of plague, of pestilence, of war, of storm, we sang it. We sang it. We will not fear the war. We will not fear the storm. Our help is on the way. But we will fear a pandemic and we will hide for months or years and we will mask up and we will vaccinate up and we will social distance because we fear that. That can't not be answered by God. God forbid we think that way. God forbid we, we look at the world that way. We sing some of these songs with great confidence and we do not apply it to the very real situations of which bring the greatest anxiety, the greatest terror, the greatest fear to our daily lives. Trust in the Lord. Does that mean you will live through it? Does it mean there will not be Christians who die? No, it doesn't mean that. There's no personal promise. There's no absolute guarantee if you trust in God and you fear him that there won't be Christians who die in the famine. Where's our hope? We have false hopes for salvation. We have false hopes for rescue. And fear has enveloped us and anxiety is destroying us and we are going down in the sinking sand like the world around us and therefore our message of faith in a God who saves, does it not ring hollow? Does it not ring hollow if we respond the same way they do? Now you say, you didn't answer all my questions. Pastor, you, you just, man, I don't know about this. Now, this you can, I'll give you my notes when I'm done. You can see I didn't have that in here. I'm not bold enough or brave enough to, to write that down to say it intentionally. But it's real, is it not? Is that not where we are? And notice I'm back to the passage because I'm going to finish it. Notice the apostles' authority. The apostles' authority, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to the apostles. He's going to build his church on the rock of that confession of who Christ is and the revelation that brought it. And he will give the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's the apostles' authority. Although Jesus is promising to give them to Peter, they aren't given in this moment. He says, I will give them. They're going to be given later. When does that take place? We'll talk more about that when we get to Matthew 18. But notice just in passing, this is not pointing to Peter as the first pope. Not at all. The keys are not given here. The keys are given to the entire group. They're given later. We'll talk more about that later. But what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? I believe it is authority. What is the authority that this talks about here? It's the authority to bind and loose, bind and loose, to lock and unlock, to close and open. 
I love what Craig Blomberg says. He says this, referring to Christians making entrance to God's kingdom available or unavailable. Bind or loose, lock or unlock, open or close. Make God's kingdom available or unavailable to people through their witness, preaching, and ministry. The entrance to God's kingdom is open or closed when we witness, preach, and minister. And this takes place in the proclamation of the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we're opening the kingdom to people. When we hold the gospel to ourselves, we close the kingdom. We, we, we have that authority to proclaim entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The church has authority. The church's authority is in the spiritual sphere to bind and loose in the kingdom of heaven. So we as a church must understand what our authority is. We must understand where it begins and where it ends. And so as a church, given this authority by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we must not let anyone, especially the civil government, even begin to believe that they can tell us what we are to do in the sphere that God has given us authority in. So one member told me last week, I don't want politics in my church. I couldn't agree more. I don't want politics in my church either. But what's worse than politics in the church is the government in the church. We don't want the government in our church. There is no biblical grounds for a state church or a church state. Sacralism is the term. There is no biblical grounds for a state church or a church state. God has used Baptists over the past 400 years to bring the vital doctrine to the world of the separation of church and state. Why is that in our fundamental, fundamental documents as a nation? Because of Baptists, praise God for us. <laughs> and if you're not a Baptist yet, you should get on the train. <laughs> separation of church and state. Now, the Baptists didn't just give it to us out of nowhere. They got it from the word of God. We believe in the separation of church and state. We hold to that. We believe in sphere sovereignty. The church has uh, authority in certain areas, and the civil government has authority in certain areas, and we shouldn't cross over and try to take authority in the areas that God hasn't given to us. So the state doesn't come into the church, and the church doesn't overtake the state. Yet, our role as God's people, as the church, the proclamation, uh, proclaimers of truth in this world, is to proclaim the truth to the civil authority. And what do we tell them? What do we tell our president? What do we tell our governor? What do we tell our mayor? What do we tell our representatives? We tell them this. You must build on Christ the solid rock. You must build your government on Christ the solid rock. You must build your laws on Christ the solid rock. He is the only thing that will make anything stable, personally, family, ch church, or government. There is no other firm foundation. And therefore, when our nation turns away from God, away from his law, away from what God has said, we will sink. And we are. We tell the civil authorities that Christ is king. They are not. And they should submit to him. They should trust in him. They should obey him. He is the Lord of lords and kings, king of kings. And he must rule over every nation. And therefore, in Psalm 33, the same psalm we just read, part of it, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Is that true? Every nation? Any nation? When we turn away from God, we turn away from the Lord, we will sink. We will be destroyed. And kingdom after kingdom has come and gone. Kingdom after kingdom. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, 
and Persians, the Romans, the Greeks. Kingdom after kingdom has come and gone because they have not made Christ their king. They've not built on the solid rock of Christ. It's true for everything. And so we proclaim the truth, not because we're going to go take over the government. Because we tell the civil government they must bow to Christ as we bow to Christ. They must bow to Christ in their sphere as we bow in our sphere. Stay in your lane, we'll stay in ours. But we proclaim the truth to them. So, in conclusion, if you're not a Christian, confess Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and Lord. There it is. It's the rock. Confess Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and Lord. Trust in him to rescue you from the power and penalty of your sins. Set you free and give you the gift of eternal life so you can face physical death with confidence that this world is not the end. It's just a small fraction, just a vapor before eternal life. And as a Christian, we must believe Christ's promise to build this church and obey his command to make disciples by first sharing the gospel as God gives opportunity. Why don't we witness more? Why don't we pray for witnessing more? Why won't we go out? Why won't we share? Many reasons. Do we believe God's promise? Do we believe Christ's promise? Will we obey his command and give the gospel as God gives opportunity? Share the good news as we have those chances, as he brings those opportunities across our path. Let's pray. Father, Only by your grace, only through your mercy, only to the glory of your great name will anything be accomplished through this time we spent together. Dear Lord, bring us back together tonight to pray together for these things. To lift our voices corporately, crying out to you to do what only you can do. Work in us, work in us to trust in our only hope, to build our lives, our families, our church, and then proclaim to the civil government that they should do the same, to build it on Jesus Christ, the solid rock. That we might understand that in every question, every struggle, every problem, Jesus is the answer. He's the beginning point of it all. May we not waver from our mission. May we not turn away from our purpose. May we do what you've called us to do, giving our lives to this task. No matter how long they are, no matter how short they are, may you embolden us and strengthen us and empower us to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.